I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Ifi Chiwetelu. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, casting doubt after a fifth estate investigation raises questions about singer-songwriter Buffy St. Marie's indigenous ancestry. Mi'kmaq professor Pam Palmiter tells us how she's processing the story. Against the law, Garth Mullins says the Vancouver organization he co-founded has to purchase illicit drugs to keep people alive. And he thinks the arrests of two of his colleagues this week were out of order. Don't go chasing waterways, at least in Yoho and Kootenai National Parks. Parks Canada has shut down all the lakes and rivers people there are used to to stop the spread of whirling disease, which is killing fish. Almost famous. We'll hear from the newly dubbed Moose Whisperer of Fort St. John, British Columbia, who helped a spooked animal that had some spooky Halloween decorations tangled in its antlers. Thin Ice, a hockey writer, says the NHL put out a statement he says feels vague and hypocritical about Shane Pinto's hefty gambling-related suspension. And soul-sucking. Facing a potentially massive bill to fix the problem, a family is living a nightmare in their Saskatchewan home that a colony of defecating, screechy, and unwelcome bats are moving in. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that tries to remember all wings must pass. As you've no doubt been hearing in the news, a new investigation by CBC's The Fifth Estate is raising questions about Buffy St. Marie's claims to Indigenous ancestry. The piece draws on interviews with the singer-songwriter's family members and includes genealogical documentation, including Miss St. Marie's birth certificate and historical research. To date, she has declined CBC's interview requests, but in a public statement released yesterday, she called the allegations deeply hurtful and continues to claim an Indigenous identity. Pam Pometer is a Mi'kmaq lawyer and chair in Indigenous governance at Toronto Metropolitan University. She's also the author of Beyond Blood, Rethinking Indigenous Identity. We reached Ms. Pometer in Toronto. Pam, I know this is a very difficult day for, for a lot of people as they've been looking at this Fifth Estate piece, um, particularly Indigenous people. How are you feeling as you process the details in the story? I feel gutted. I literally feel like someone punched me in the stomach and still trying to process the fact that one of my childhood heroes, that this is true. When you say she was a childhood hero, what made her that to you? Well, you know, the fact that she was wearing beads and feathers and our traditional clothes and speaking up about Native people and how wonderful we are and trying to educate the public and to see 
what I thought was one of our people on TV talking about us, especially, you know, like in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, people weren't so welcoming of Native people. So it was just very comforting to see, like, even on Sesame Street, she was going to be there. So this investigation did raise real questions for you, troubling questions. Oh, yes, because I'm one of those people like the, you know, the kind of debate over the Buffy issue has been going on all week before Mm -hmm. the story came out, before the evidence came out. But I'm one of those people that I wait to see all of the facts, all of the evidence, and then focus on that. So I'd kind of hoped it was maybe wishy-washy or something, but... The more I read on the story, it just, my stomach just sunk more and more. She has said that this coverage is is hurtful and in the video that's embedded in the the online piece that people can read, uh, they can watch her video as well. And and she talks about chosen families. And we know the Piapot community had, had accepted her as well. So one of the questions some people are asking is if they've accepted her and she sees them as chosen family, does this kind of evidence matter? Well, I think it depends on what we're talking about. So if she meets the membership criteria for Piapot First Nation, and Piapot First Nation has made her a member based on their sovereign right to decide who's a member and who's not, like, I wouldn't be thinking the same way that I am right now, but I'm, I'm a part of lots of families. It doesn't make me part of whatever that nation is. For example, like you can be adopted into a family by tradition. It could be Mi'kmaq tradition. It could be Cree tradition. But being adopted into a family, according to ceremony as an adult, is not the same thing as being adopted into a family, like a child adoption, either by law or by Cree law. That's a very different scenario, kids and adults. And then again... There's a difference between being adopted into a family and then being an official part of the First Nation. So you think she should have made that very clear throughout her career? Always be clear. Always be honest. And I think you see 60 Scoop survivors all over Canada and the U.S. They are always honest. If they don't know who their parents are, if they don't know where they're from, they say that. And they, you know, they... They share that trauma, they say how much it hurts them, they're on their quest to reconnect, and we're all about that. So what really upsets me here is to take that, adopt that as your story, and then if I'm to believe the documents, she wasn't adopted out in the 60s scoop. So it just hurts me twice over to adopt that kind of trauma story. If that's in case, uh, you know, in fact, what she did. In terms of the the discussion that was happening online, as you mentioned, even before uh, the story was published, mm-hmm. you, you've asked people to, to, to be gentle with one another. Mm-hmm. Why did you want to say that? Because in the lead up to this story, uh, like before we even had the facts, people were uh, yelling, I guess, uh, on social media, calling each other names, if you even questioned whether or not it was true, you were a colonizer. There was just so much fighting. And I thought, we we haven't even seen the evidence yet. And this is how much pain it's caused. It's triggered people who've actually gone through the 60s scoop. 
And so they're sharing their pain online. It's triggered people who knew her and loved her and just want to believe her, but feel crushed by the revelations. There's people who, it doesn't matter what the evidence is, they don't want to watch the show or read the article. They will just stand by Buffy no matter what because they love her, they grew up loving her, and they just can't believe that she could be anything other than the Cree Indian she said she was or the Algonquin Indian she said she was or the half Mi'kmaq she said she was. So it really hurts me that so many people are hurting. Yeah. A big part of that is what was undeniable about her career, the the activism and her, her musical accomplishments. So some of what I've heard is people saying, well, is it worth it? For, for this to come out, given what, what she did achieve and what she did say and, and do when she talked about Indigenous people? I don't speak for anyone else, uh, but I can say for me personally, the truth is always worth it. Protecting our sovereign right to decide who our First Nation members are is always worth it. Um, asserting our right to call out people who are using our culture or our identity, to me, that's always worth it. It's easy when we don't like the guy, but when it's someone you love, it's it's terrible. And I, I feel for the family members, the family who's been trying to call this out for decades, and then the family members who are standing beside Buffy and how divided that community must be. Again, all situations, none of us or they created. Pam, I really appreciate your time. Please take care. Thank you. Thank you so much. Pam Palmiter is a Mi'kmaq lawyer and chair in Indigenous governance at Toronto's Metropolitan University. The Fifth Estate's investigation, Making an Icon, is streaming now on YouTube or watch it tonight on CBC TV and CBC Gem. There's a lot we don't know about Shane Pinto's sports gambling, but we do know that the forward for the Ottawa Senators has been suspended for 41 games, exactly half an NHL regular season. And we know that's one of the longest suspensions in NHL history. We also know that the 22-year-old isn't denying it and that the same league suspending him has allowed ads for sports betting websites to air during his games and be emblazoned on his helmet. Ian Mendez is a senior writer covering the NHL for The Athletic and is well acquainted with Shane Pinto's family. We reached him in Phoenix, Arizona. Ian, what do you think Shane Pinto actually did? Well, this, you know, this is a really interesting question because I think, you know, when the NHL put the statement out, it almost created more questions than it answered. And it was it felt like it was intentionally vague. And, you know, when a league suspends a player for 41 games and doesn't really give you the reasons why, I think it's, as a fan, as a media member, uh, as an outside observer, it's fair to ask, well, what the heck happened? And I think that's a, the league is trying to send a message here that it's really important that you take this stuff seriously. And we don't have a lot of tolerance for anything even adjacent 
mm-hmm. to players being involved in gambling, which, again, I think we can have a conversation about the hypocrisy that's baked into all of well, this. Yeah. With all the ads that you see for for betting and sports. well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that certainly in those kinds of questions and concerns people have had. But when we talk about this statement from the league and the speculation you talked about, what else do you think is coming to people's minds here? Well, I think your your um, initial thought is if you see that a player has been suspended for half of a season, and and let me make this clear: the last time there was a gambling related suspension in the National Hockey League was in the 1940s. So, you're, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, eight decades here since we've had something like this. You're left to wonder what, what, what's happening, what's, what's, what's going on here. But we've seen this now in other sports. I think this is really important for context. I would say in the last two years, we have seen at least a half dozen, almost 10 NFL players be suspended for gambling violations. Sometimes it's as simple as they were betting on other sports, but they were doing it from inside their NFL team's locker room, and they don't want that. So it's happened in other sports, but this is the first time, really, that we've seen this bleed into hockey. And I would love to see, and again, this is me looking through you know, the lens of a journalist, but I, I think this is what we should all demand, is transparency. Like, 41-game suspension, you... We have seen over the years players do just absolutely vicious and brutal things on the ice that have left other players injured, uh, concussed, and they only get three or four or five. The odd time you might see a 10-game suspension. A 41-game suspension is almost unprecedented, but it sends a clear message from the league that we're not interested in our players Uh, going down that road. But is this all a very mixed message when we do talk about the fact that the NHL, the teams, its broadcast partners take a lot of advertising money from sports gambling websites and apps? Well, the hypocrisy just just bleeds through here, right? And and I I think one of the most interesting things is in, in 2021, the Ottawa Senators became the first team in the entire NHL to have a gambling company... Uh, on their helmet. And what's happened now with the legalization of gambling is not only has it sort of been brought out into the light, it's been really, really crammed down the viewer's throat. You're constantly inundated. Mm -hmm. You can't turn on a game and watch uh, an intermission segment or a game without something uh, crawling across the bottom of the screen with your chance to place a bet on a game that you're watching. And and as the game changes, the, the odds change and the lines change. And what I hope is that a uh, you know a story like Shane Pinto's opens up a conversation for us to have as, as hockey fans and as media. What are we doing here? I wonder if you think it will make a difference what the Alcohol and Gaming Commission in Ontario has recently announced. So as of next year, February, uh, athletes and some celebrities will not be allowed to appear in commercials that promote sports betting. And of course, Connor McDavid, Austin Matthews are, are just two examples of, of players who... who we're doing that. So do you think that will make a difference? Well, I think it, it sends a strong message. And it makes you think, well, like, you know, if you're an, a, an athlete or a celebrity, you'd like to think that, that they're endorsing the product with some degree of sincerity and not just taking the money, right? And, 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 and it makes you think that maybe this is a great microcosm for the whole thing. Like, if you're not really truly believing in it, then why are you in a relationship with these companies? And so I think it's 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 a, a smart move by the gaming commission to say, you know what? There's there's a lot of 12 year old to 17 year old uh, young people who watch sports 
who look up to Connor McDavid, who look up to Austin Matthews, and they've got phones, and when they're watching their favorite players and their heroes uh, kind of endorse something that can lead you down a dark path, you're not thinking about that, right? You're not thinking about the consequences of yeah. that, and I, I think it's a smart move. No different than you, you go back 25, 30 years ago, they made some decisions around how are we going to allow tobacco companies right. to advertise. I do want to ask you, in terms of relationships, you have one with, with Shane and his family. Yeah. How is he doing? You know, so, look, and, and I've, I've been really fortunate to, you know, I spent some time with Shane and his family in Long Island uh, last year. That's where he grew up. And, like, I think there's a great de- a degree of embarrassment for Shane right now, and, and more so probably for the, the, the anxiety and pain that he's caused to his, his parents. Like, he is really close to his mom and dad. And, and I think that's the tough one for, for Shane right now is that, Boy, my mom and dad are, are going through this. I, I think he knows, look, I made a mistake. I'm, I'm willing to move on from it. I don't think there was malice involved here. I, did, I wasn't trying to, you know, uh, make money. I wasn't trying to do anything. It was just, you know, carelessness. But I think there's, there's a degree of, boy, I, 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 probably, I probably let some people down close to me. And, and that's probably the, the overriding emotion for him right now. Did he sp- tell you specifically what he did? Uh, no, no. And, and look, look, so I'll be real transparent here. Like mm-hmm. every conversation I've had, uh, with the family in the last couple of days has been completely on the condition of I told them, hey, this is just a mm-hmm. conversation that won't go further than this. So I, I don't feel comfortable kind of going going down the road of sharing too too much when 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 people ask for you know discretion and privacy in, in conversations. Understood. I just had to ask as well. Yeah, but, of course. Well, that, that's what a good reporter and a host <laughs> does. <laughs> Ian, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, you betcha. Ian Mendez is a senior writer for The Athletic. We reached him in Phoenix, Arizona. A family in Spiritwood, Saskatchewan, are playing host to many unwanted visitors. Bats have taken over their home, specifically the space between their ceiling and their roof, and they've started to make themselves at home in the rest of the house, too. It's an annoying, unsafe, and unhealthy problem. Extermination isn't an option because the bats are a protected species, and the family says the other options are, at best, highly impractical. We reached the homeowner, Rochelle Swan, in Spiritwood, Saskatchewan. Rochelle, I know you can hear the bats in your home, but what are some of the other day-to-day reminders that you have these unwanted visitors? Uh, well, I mean, when we occasionally find them in our living space, which, oh. I mean, it doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Um, and, I mean, it is it is like we just constantly think about it. Just how many do you think you, they are, that you're dealing with up there? Any sense? Well, multiple. I think, and I, I do think that the, the their population is growing, Um but we we understand that bats have extreme location loyalty. So if they found somewhere that they like, they're going to keep coming back as long as they can get in. Um, and when, when we hear them, sometimes we're like, "Oh, that's not just like one or two bats." Like that's like we, we kind of joke that sometimes it's like they're having a party up in the beam in our living room. <laughs> it's nice that you can joke about it. That, that's well, a good I mean, thing. you know, the old laugh or you'll cry thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can see that. You mentioned that they they can't do anything about them, the exterminators, the teams. That's because these these particular bats are a protected species. They're endangered, uh, so they're they're protected under the Wildlife Act. There are ways to to remove them, but you've been 
coming up against obstacles, complications to doing that. Yeah. Yeah, like we have a company that came out and they specialize, they're, they're roofers, but they specialize in bat relocation as well because they saw there was a gap in the market there, that there was there was nobody doing that and there was people mm-hmm. that needed it. So they came out last summer um, and fixed the roof as best they could, but it's a tin roof and like I said, there's no attic or anything. And so they said, we'll fix it, but your roof is a mess. Like your home inspector should have seen this. They said, we'll try to do our best. So they used 60 cans of silicone and fixed all the holes they could find, installed back cones, um, but the creditors are still getting in. So these guys had said, like, we're not going to make any promises to you. Like, we want to help you, but with a roof like this, you know, we may not be able to solve the problem. And they said, and if we can't, you'll have to remove the roof because there's no other way to get into it. So I, I keep, that's the, the obstacle that we keep running into that, I mean, we can't even just throw poison up there because then we'd have a bunch of dead bats in our roof. And I think, like, the biggest thing it always comes back to is we don't have any access into our roof. If you did decide to take that step, you know, to to remove your roof and then replace it, what would that cost? The outfit that had come in and done the, the fixing had said sixty to 100000 Um And so, naturally, Dollars. I called our insurance provider and they're like, oh, no, we can't help you with that. It's, you know, one of those things that insurance doesn't cover. Um, and so, basically, now, like, the reason I'm sort of pushing is because if they're... If, there, there's got to be some kind of either federal or provincial funding or something to help us because we don't want to live like this and we want to be able to sell our home. We want to be able to have people feel safe in our home. But like we don't have $60,000 in the bank. In terms of feeling safe, but also feeling healthy, have there been any concerns or impacts on your health, your your partner, your wife's health, your children? I mean, well, the rabies shots were pretty terrible. Oh, um, how many? In the two-week span, the, the five of us got 47, and we'll have to continue going for boosters as long as this is our reality. Um, and then I guess, you know, we've done a lot of researching, and there's uh, um, a lung infection called histoplasmosis that can be caused from um, a fungus that grows on bat droppings. So, I mean, we don't know how big the problem is in our roof, so we don't know how much droppings there are up there. And, yeah, my spouse is immunocompromised. She's got cancer that's in remission. So, mm-hmm. And then, like, our children's rooms are up in, in the loft, so if, if that you know, that fungus spores were going to get in anywhere. It would be in their rooms. You've you've talked to insurance. They said they can't help. The conservation officers uh, have have told you that they can't help. What's your recourse? Have you spoken to well, other I mean, officials? I should be clear that the, the conservation officers didn't necessarily say they couldn't help, but they said we don't have any special training for how to deal with bats. And I mean, really, it's a structural thing now, right? If Every time we find a bat in our living space... They've said to us, just call us and we'll come remove it so you don't have to deal with it. So our recourse, that's kind of, we, we don't have any. Like, I've tried emailing um, Scott Moe and Gary Vidal, um, and I've tried emailing, like, the ministries of health and housing and environment. Ministry of Environment got back to me, and, and she said that she didn't really have an answer for me. Let me think on it. I'll call you back. And she said she actually specializes in bats. Um, but, you know, th- there's lots of places out there that, that there's bat specialists and, and people that are trained to relocate them. and uh, But the thing is, like, it all comes down to, like, it's a structural thing. We can't get into our roof to do any of this. And, I mean, what are we paying? Like, we pay so much insurance on our house, and it's not covering us for something that we need the most. What's your plan now? Reaching out to, you know, like, our... our Scott Moe did call me back. He... Um, and he, he did say he didn't really know what to do either. He was going to talk to Gary Vidal because he's the federal. Honestly, I don't think we're going to get anywhere with this. One of our friends set up a GoFundMe page. Um, but, I mean, that's like, 
it takes a little hit on your pride to like literally open your hand and say to the people that you know, can you give me some money? You know, it's just, it's, it's difficult, but there's a GoFundMe page anyway. So, I mean, the, the ideal solution would be that the government would go, okay, like we can help you with this. Like I was just reading this morning, there was a guy in Saskatchewan that illegally had zebras and that the pr- province has said, yes, okay, we we'll spend $100,000 right. to mm-hmm. build a heated barn for these zebras. I'm like, pardon me? Like we could use $100,000 to keep our family safe. Do you think you'll hear from Premier Scott Moe again? I hope so. I mean, he actually is from the neighboring town to where I live. So I know a lot of people around here know him personally. So if I wanted to be pushy, I could certainly get a hold of him again. But I hope that he'll just reach out. And in the meantime, when you hear that scratching again? We just uh, laugh, I guess, and look at the book on our mantle that we have up there about bats. (laughs) You're experts now. I, I kind of feel like I know more about these little things than I ever wanted to, that's for sure. Well, Rochelle, thank you for your time. Yeah, I think, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it as well. Take care. We reached Rochelle Swan in Spiritwood, Saskatchewan. We also asked the Saskatchewan Ministry of the Environment about this. In an email, they wrote that the ministry is, quote, currently working towards a solution with the homeowner. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. The Drug User Liberation Front freely admits they're breaking the law. Through its Compassion Club pilot program, the group distributes illicit drugs, including cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine, to users after testing their supply first. And this week, that work got two of its co-founders arrested. While Dolph's actions were intended to reduce the harms caused by the toxic illicit drug supply, We have always warned that anyone who violates the Criminal Code or the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act should expect to face enforcement and criminal charges. Vancouver Police Department Inspector Phil Hurd announcing the arrests of two Drug User Liberation Front co-founders earlier this week. Eris Nix and Jeremy Calicum were released Wednesday and VPD is considering criminal charges. Garth Mullins is another co-founder of Dolph. We reached him in Vancouver. Garth, given what we heard there from Vancouver police, was it just a matter of time before these arrests came down? Well, it didn't have to happen. You know, the police have a lot of discretion on uh, what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. But uh, also, you know, when our friends and loved ones are dying in huge numbers, we have no choice but to disobey unjust laws. The two people arrested are your colleagues, Eris Nix and Jeremy Callicum. Have you spoken to them yet? I've had brief conversations mm-hmm. with Eris on uh, text, but, um, you know, they're just trying to manage their own situation right now. You know, it's uh, it can be quite traumatic getting arrested. For for our listeners who, who are maybe just hearing about Delph, 
does the Drug User Liberation Front buy and sell controlled substances? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we obtain uh, controlled substances and then we test them through mass spectrometry so that we can be sure that they're not containing the lethal contaminants that are killing people in huge numbers on the street. And then a small controlled number of people who are uh, seasoned drug users and part of a little group, uh, they're able to obtain those drugs so that those people don't have to rely on the potentially lethal street drugs. We're talking about heroin, cocaine, and and methamphetamines in many cases. Are you making a profit? No. No, I mean, this is this is done with privately donated money. So so Dolph has to raise money from concerned citizens and people who are, are like us, who are upset about the huge amount of deaths. You said this, this didn't have, have to happen, but you're doing something that is against the law. What choice did police have? Police don't enforce every infraction of every single law. They choose what's good for society. And, you know, in the history of drug policy reform in Canada, it's always been this way. You know, we got distribution of needles during the first wave of the AIDS crisis because we did it illegally first. We got safe injection sites in Canada because we did it illegally first. This is civil disobedience. This is how marginalized groups of people get their rights. It's no different. But the police don't have to do this. They don't have to play the age-old role of running around after us and arresting us. Why do you think it's happening now? I think there's, it's part of a bigger right-wing backlash that's happening across the country, but really specifically here in British Columbia. You know, um, safe injection sites are closing or prevented from being opened. You hear people like Pierre Polyev, you know, the leader of the Conservative Party, uh, trumpeting this sort of anti-harm reduction stuff on the national stage. So there's a big tide of moral panic that's bearing down on us right now and kind of wiping out these small reforms we've been able to scrabble towards. We're going to play another clip now for you and our listeners. This is from BC MLA, Eleanor Sturko, the Liberal Party shadow critic for mental health addiction, recovery and education. She's reacting uh, in, in the provincial legislature to Delft's approach. I feel absolutely outraged, and I'll tell you why, is to hear that this government is saying we have to do everything that we can because they're trying to save lives and that would somehow justify supporting organizations that are putting money and guns into the hands of people that kill British Columbians through gang activity. So her assertion, her claim there is whether it's your intention or not, whether you like it or not, Delph may be funding other kinds of criminal activity by purchasing these drugs. I mean, we've got to say, who has created the organized crime illegal market for drugs? It's the government by prohibiting drugs. Dolph has tried to do things legally. We didn't set out to be outlaws. We applied to Health Canada for a kind of legal standing so that we could have purchase agreements with pharmaceutical companies. But, you know, Health Canada said no, uh, and we're back into a corner. Right? Nobody else is coming forward with any kind of strategy to put clean drugs into the hands of people who are on the edge of death. You know, this has been my story, my life. I've been a drug user most of my life. I'm alive because I can have access to clean, tested opioids. I want that for everybody else. You know, you talk about your experience, you know, your your lived experience in Vancouver, uh, you know, uh, and growing up in Vancouver, this has always been a topic of discussion, a concern. People have been looking for solutions there for a long time, but we've seen the problem 
expand and balloon and more people are suffering. And there are others asking, you know, even advocates who are wondering if decriminalization is working. Decriminalization is absolutely working. There are 76% fewer arrests for possession this year than previous years. That's uh, the government and the police's own statistic. And but that's what de- are, that's are there it. fewer people using drugs? Well, that's not, that's not what decriminalization is about. Decriminalization is to take away the handcuffs. The toxic drug supply affects people who are daily opioid users, who are addicted like me, but they also affect uh, people who are recreational drug users. So you could have all the treatment beds you want, you know, if that works, but you're still not going to reach all the people who are dying of overdose. The only way to do it is to put the illegal, illicit, deadly drug supply out of business and regulate it. It's a wild west right now. End the insanity. Vancouver police have also said, and you may have heard this quote, we understand the magnitude of the ongoing overdose crisis and the impact drug toxicity deaths have in communities throughout the province, end quote. And and they've highlighted the fact they supported the launch of North America's first supervised injection site. They've advocated for safe supplies. So is the issue here, in your view, law enforcement itself or or the law? No, they they didn't support that stuff. They only supported that stuff after we broke the law, used civil disobedience, and got it done legally. So they only come along late in the process when the battle is already won and say, oh, yes, we support it. But they didn't support past civil disobedience attempts to make drug policy reform. What will happen now without Delph operating as usual? Well, there's 40 or 50 more people who are vulnerable to uh, overdose and death. Um, We're further away from getting a safe supply in British Columbia, and the numbers are going to go up. This is the only way to stop the deaths. You know, it's, it's kind of nice to say that people should quit drugs. Believe me, I've tried. It's a lot harder than you think. And if you do, if you manage to, it often takes years. But we need something that's going to save your life this afternoon, not years. Garth, thank you for your time. Thanks a lot, Neil. Garth Mullins is a co-founder of the Drug User Liberation Front. We reached him in Vancouver. It sounds like a cross between a hot tub and an illness Stephen King would make up, but whirling disease is no joke. Parks Canada has shut down access to every body of water and shoreline in Yoho and Kootenai National Parks in British Columbia after the disease was detected for the first time in the province. It's not harmful to humans, but it does kill off fish populations. Megan Gowdy is an aquatic specialist with Parks Canada. We reached her in Lake Louise, Alberta. Megan, shutting down all the rivers and lakes in two national parks certainly is, is not a small thing. What should that signal to to our listeners about how concerned you are about whirling disease? Well, whirling disease is a condition that affects juvenile salmonids. And um, in some locations, they've seen up to 90% mortality rates in, in juvenile populations. Um, the 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 disease is caused by a microscopic parasite. This parasite it can can be in water, mud, uh, fish, um, and and vegetation that are coming from infected areas. It's very easy to spread, um, yeah. and so we are quite concerned uh, by this. 
it's the first time it's been detected in British Columbia, I believe. So, so how did it get there? Yes, this is the first detection uh, in British Columbia. Um, the primary vector for transport of, of most aquatic invasive species, including this, uh, the parasite that causes whirling disease, uh, is through human recreation. Um, so think if, if somebody's using a paddleboard in, in one location that has uh, the disease or the parasite, um, they, they move to another without properly clean, drain, and drying their, their watercraft or gear. Um, this is, we know, the primary vector for, for this transmission. What is it like for you, someone who does this work, to, to see this happening? Because it's quite disturbing to, to hear what it can do. What is it like for you to see it, see the damage? Um, well, it's uh, I've spent, you know, uh, most of my career in trying to prevent um, the uh, spread of aquatic invasive species and and protecting the ecological integrity of freshwater ecosystems. And so um, it is quite sad and, and disheartening to, to see um, now this disease has been spread uh, into British Columbia waters. Is there something that could have prevented it, that should have been put in place? Well, preventing aquatic invasive species, including the parasite that causes whirling disease, is really a shared responsibility. Um, we do have um, an aquatic invasive species prevention program in Yoho and Kootenai National Park that has been operating since 2018. Um, but it really is, is the responsibility of, of everybody, mm-hmm. the users, uh, visitors that are, that are coming and recreating um, in the park um, to, to share um, in this responsibility. Where does that name yes, come sir. from? Uh, whirling disease. Mm-hmm. What is it, you know, why is it named that? Right. So um, it's, again, I said it's a, a parasite that affects um, juvenile salmonids. And so the parasite actually attacks the cartilage in the uh, head and spine mm-hmm. of juveniles. And so it actually causes deformities. Um, one of these deformities can be a twisted tail um, or, or deformed tail. And so it actually renders the fish unable to swim properly. So they'll swim in a whirling pattern. And that's where the name whirling comes from, is that, that pattern of swimming um, that, that fit infected fish can, can often exhibit. It sounds quite awful. Mm-hmm. What yes. exactly are people banned from doing now that you've, they, that you've made these closures, you put these closures into place? Yes, so um, it's a restricted activity order that is restricting all in-water activities. So this would include angling, uh, fishing, um, wading in the water, uh, using any uh, watercraft, so paddleboarding, kayaking, canoeing, um, any anything where people are, are in the in and out of the water. It's it's not harmful to humans. No, this the the whirling disease, but you just want to make sure the spread does not continue. Yes, exactly. Um, so again, humans are really the the primary way that this is spread um, from water body to water body as they move um, uh, infected water, mud, or uh, plant material or fish material from one water body to another. So by closing. Um, the water bodies to that in-water activity, we're removing that vector of transportation. So it's why it's really important for um, visitors to to respect those closures uh, while they're in place. How long do you think the closures will be in place? Right now we have uh, until the end of March um, 2024, and so this allows us to spend the next few months really determining what um, the program will look like uh, 
or what management activities will be can, um, put in place for next summer. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a large area to to monitor to police. So, how are you going mm-hmm. to enforce what you've put into place? Um, we have crews out right now that are, are out installing signage, um, which hopefully you know we're. we're at. We're asking for people to respect this, and so we need to make sure that folks are aware that these closures are in place. Um, we are fortunate in that we are coming into the winter season, and so use in the park is going to be lower uh, for sure, but our wardens are also out um, monitoring uh, the areas uh, easily assessed by, uh, by visitors as well to ensure that uh, the, the closures um, are respected. What will the signs be, Megan, that you'll be looking for that will give you, give you some hope and and be able to signal that, that you can open, reopen all of these the, these parts of the parks at the end mm-hmm. of March 2024? So um, at this point, we're going to be continuing sampling to determine the extent of the infection throughout the, the Kicking Horse Watershed in Yoho National Park. At this point, um, what we're really hoping for is, is compliance and, and a program where we think that we can control or prevent or limit the spread um, from the Kicking Horse watershed to other regions. Um, so again, we're looking at all um, management options uh, at this time, and uh, we'll be working really hard with our partners, uh, colleagues that have um, have had whirling disease in their jurisdictions um, over the uh, coming months to determine what that what those markers might be. Megan, thank you. Thank you so much. Megan Gowdy is an aquatic specialist with Parks Canada. We reached her in Lake Louise, Alberta. In recent years, millions of international students have come to Canada, but in a significant number of cases, it's the system that's been schooled. Earlier this year, Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada launched a task force to help fight the fraud after dozens of international students were found to have fake acceptance letters. Today, the federal government unveiled new rules to help tackle the issue. Mark Miller is the minister responsible. We reached him in Toronto. Minister, when we talk about the the scale of the fraud and the concerns here, more than 100 fake acceptance letters, 60% of the time students involved were being scammed, 40% of the students involved were allegedly in on it. How are you going to stop this from happening again? How will these measures actually help? Well, first, in in a number of ways, you know, this will get to some of the more clear-cut aspects of the fraud. This is just people faking acceptance letters and then showing up in Canada at an institution uh, with these letters, whether they knew about it or not. And, and that's something that really we have the responsibility to address by making sure that we're cross-referencing letters from the institutions with uh, the people at the visa level. So this does not occur at the outset. It's very much the beginning of uh, a much broader approach to stemming not only the perverse incentives created by a very, very a lucrative ecosystem mm-hmm. in international students that's grown over the last few years, but one where the federal government needs to exercise its role. Why wasn't that happening before? To my ears, that sounds like it should have you know, it should have been happening. Excellent question. I think this is something that just grew quite quickly, particularly coming out of COVID. We trusted the process of designating 
learning institutes that is entirely within the jurisdiction of the provinces. Um, and, and now we need to verify. So very important point, but it's important that we actually address it now. And again, this is the, you know, trust but verify is an important adage in, in diplomacy, particularly diplomacy now between federal government and provinces. The key point here is the following. We can't stem the entirety of this or, or even continue to address some of the, the perverse incentives that have been created by this without the implication of provinces and territories, one, in addressing uh, their own responsibility in those designated learning institutions and also addressing post-secondary underfunding, which has been systemic over the years and has now been sort of lobbed in the backs of international students. The one thing I don't want to create is the impression that international students themselves are uh, the problem. They are really able to come to our, for them to be able to come to our country in a seamless fashion and continue to build it is really important. And, you know, a good chunk of cabinet themselves have been international students. So mm-hmm. it'd be hypocritical to put it on, on their backs. Uh, but there has been uh, really serious issues with fraud and people providing false hope to international students. And that's something that we need to address. So the first step, the immediate step that we took today is an enhanced letter verification process. And then the second step that we will be addressing over the course of the year is implementing a recognized institution process where we are making sure that there's quicker pathways for institutions that are actually doing a good job in in, in properly um, in properly reflecting a good student experience, whether it's uh, their commitment to housing, uh, their ratios of, of foreign students to, to domestic students that are being properly observed, their supports that they provide in mental health and other supports. Uh, and that's something we're going to phase in in the next year so that those institutions aren't punished by perhaps what we might do in the next step and benefit from expedited processing. How will you determine um, which schools qualify for that, that kind of fast-tracking? So we have, over the last uh, little while, as we have created this model. We've worked with some of these institutions to look at the indicators that would indicate, I would say, generally good behavior. We're still refining what those are, you know, whether a particular institution has proper housing for students, what services they provide to support students, uh, and a number of other indicators that will give us the comfort that these are people that we can trust. A lot of them will self-qualify immediately because they're already doing that. Um, They are some of the better actors, and so that isn't the entirety of the problem that I'm trying Mm -hmm. to to, to fix, Uh, but I don't want to penalize them on the next step, which may have to be a little more drastic as we we look at how this situation evolves. We had independent Senator Ratna Omadvar on the program uh, last month. I spoke with her and she said the government of Canada could could easily minimize the confusion that international students often face by sending a letter with each visa that clearly lays out their situation, what their visa is for, whether they can work, whether they'll be able to apply for permanent residency or not. Is that something you're considering? We provide this type of information. I think that generally, whether it is as pointed as the senator uh, suggested is something that I'm always flexible and, and open to looking at. I think when you look at the the host countries, you see um, what is a a culture of using third parties and agents for doing the work. And so we really need to attack that aspect of it as well. Yeah, that was a big question I had for her because I know just from from friends who who are coming from overseas, use the example in Turkey, people think that that's the best way to make everything go smoothly, work with with an agent. How do you change people's minds on that? What is the government doing to make sure international students know their rights and know that it's maybe better to communicate with you directly? I'll be quite frank, it's it's difficult. Um, getting our own house in order has uh, has in itself been a challenge, uh, making sure that we are not providing or at least nourishing that false hope has 
has has, uh, has been a challenge that uh, we are now proceeding to rectify. Uh, but that secondary challenge is is one that we will continue to work on. My colleague Mary Yang, in particular, does have some responsibility in making sure that we are tackling these matters as well. Um, agents overseas, uh, as well as domestic agents that are just um, using this as, as part of a lucrative pathway to line their pockets. It's stuff that we have to continue to identify and, and frankly, speak a little more publicly about, regardless of, of the political consequence. You talked about the value that international students bring to the institutions they they study at, but also to, to this country, to Canada. But at the same time, your government is not ruling out maybe putting a cap on the number of international students coming here. Colleges and universities don't want to see that, as you know, for a number of reasons. So why is your government considering that still? So I've taken it off the table on this initial round. Uh, reserve the right to use it if this situation continues to get out of hand. and we can. So it's not fully off the table. Well, it is for this round. Uh, whether you consider it off the table or under the table is a matter of perspective. This is something that I would hesitate greatly to use because it's a bit like using a hammer to do surgery. At this initial stage, it's not something that I'm considering to put a cap on things. Much more to discuss with you. Lots of threads to pull there in other conversations. Minister, I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Mark Miller is Canada's Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship. We reached him in Toronto. Flicking on KXVO in Omaha on any normal night, you'd see what you'd expect from a local newscast. Maybe a person in a suit telling you about the local sports teams or in front of a green screen reading the weather. But on October 29, 2006, viewers got a shock. They witnessed a man wearing a black leotard and a pumpkin on his head, doing a wild interpretive dance to the Ghostbusters theme song. That clip became a popular seasonal meme, so popular that you can see almost infinite versions of it on any social media or video app this time of year. And tis the season. In 2017, former As It Happens host Carol Off spoke to the man behind the pumpkin head, Matt Geiler. Here is that interview from our archives. Matt, just for our listeners who haven't seen this or don't remember that they've seen this, what are you doing in this video? (laughs) Um, I am joyously gyrating in a black unitard with a pumpkin on my face in a manic celebration of the spirit of Halloween. And the song is, the piece of music? The, the song is the Ghostbusters theme. Okay, let's go back to the night when this began. How long ago, what year did you first do this video? This was two nights before Halloween, 2006. At the time, I was working as a news anchor, which is absolutely true, but probably unbelievable. And we just, we had kind of gotten to the point in the evening where we're about to go live, but we had about seven minutes left before the show had to be stacked. So we were really scrambling to fill up a hole in the broadcast. And since it was, since our shows that week were Halloween themed, just kind of out of out of desperation, I I did that. That was <laughs> you. You did what? You what? Uh, you you ran out and put on a black unitard and a pumpkin head. Right. 
Um, I said to my producer, I, I said, uh, why don't you throw up like a, like a graveyard onto the green screen? I'm just going to dance for like four minutes, and then we can just put that into the block right before weather, and it will eat up some time. You did this live. We didn't do it live. We did it. The broadcast was live. We did it with probably about five or six minutes before we went live. But you were the anchor of the news. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, did, did anyone consider this inappropriate? You know, there was not a lot of oversight at the, at the station. We were kind of left to our own devices, which was, I don't it was kind of inexplicable. But um, <laughs> nobody at the time really had anything to say about it. I mean, I had a news director and also a general manager there, but they were they were kind of more concerned with the broadcast on our sister station, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but now, had you had to cover this much airtime before in some way? Oh, yeah. I mean, we had a nightly broadcast that was 22 minutes uh, every night, seven days a week. When I had got hired, the the news director said, you know, you, you'll have to borrow camera people from the other uh, from the other station because there's not a designated photographer for this program. So... Even from the get-go, like, a lot of times I would just film myself, like, doing MOS pieces where you could literally see my arm up holding the camera on myself. I mean, it was, it was crazy. It gives, a new, it gives a new meaning to the word shoestring. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was, yeah, it was beyond shoestring. It was like, you just kind of had to fend for yourself, you know? After this video, which is, I mean, it's kind of a staple of, of Halloween now, there's even like like versions that run for hours that you can play and you're, right. and you're at your Halloween parties. Was, <laughs> right. was it an overnight sensation? Were you instantly famous for doing Dancing Pumpkin Man? No. It, actually, it was probably the day after we did it, our, the guy who managed the YouTube channel at the station threw it up on the YouTube channel I think it sat there for about three years with, I don't know, maybe a couple of hundred views. And it really didn't, nothing happened with it until a guy at, um, I believe it was BuzzFeed, featured it in 2009. He was like, this is the greatest Halloween (laughs) video the internet has ever produced or something like that. And so that's when it first started to kind of gain its viral traction, I guess. Do you have any idea how many people have seen it on YouTube? Uh, right now, I think it's sitting, the original is sitting at like six and a half million views. Um, but that's not counting just the count. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of people who have mashed it up with like different songs and stuff. So I think um, the last time anybody checked, I think if you count all those, it's probably closer to like 10. Now, you're, you're no longer a news anchor. You're no longer at that station, and you don't even do the news anymore, right? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and But is this still, I mean, do you still do Dancing Pumpkin Man, or is that sort of in your past? It has been in my past for a while, up until America's Got Talent called this year and was like, hey, can we get the Dancing Pumpkin Man on? Really, I'd only ever done it that one time. It wasn't like a thing I toured around or anything. In my in my real life I'm a improvisational comedian and I do I tour a lot, I do a lot of colleges and and clubs. So yeah, it's it's not something that I'm that I do live really. And do you have a costume for Halloween this year? <laughs> I don't. It's weird. I, I I do so much work in in 
um, you know, TV and live performance where I'm in costumes that I, I very rarely think about like the Halloween costume. I need to get on it because it's fast approaching. You do. You're, yeah, there's not much time left to invent that. But and and there's a lot of people. A lot of people are going to be out there as Dancing Pumpkin Man. I know. I've had people cont- uh, get in touch with me and ask like, where did I? Where? How do you get the mask? Is the part that always hangs them up. They're always asking like, where I got the mask. What was it actually that you used as a mask? I, and yeah, that's where I kind of can't help them because I the original mask was a just a, a like a decoration from the lobby of the news station that I very quickly fashioned into a kind of a makeshift mask. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt, it's good to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye bye. That was Pumpkinhead Dancing Man Matt Geiler talking to Carol Off in 2017. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 following the world at 6. You can also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app. Take care. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Ipi Chiwetelu. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.